Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. If the concept of a rock star had existed at the turn of the 20th century, the subject of our podcast today would have been one. Yes. A fashion rock star. Hands down. Elvis may be the king of rock and roll, but the designer we are going to talk about today was known as the king of fashion. His work was shocking to some people. It was undeniably groundbreaking to pretty much everyone else. The fact that he radically altered the way women dressed during the 20th century was one of his major innovations. He played a seminal role in the birth of modern fashion photography and illustration. He was the first designer to launch his own cosmetics and fragrance lines. The first to divine lifestyle branding and to endeavor to forge an alliance between art and fashion. He lived his life to the max, sparing no expense in his pursuit of all things beautiful. He was a man who rose brilliantly and crashed with equal flourish. This is a story of the rise and fall of the man, the myth, the magnificent Paul Poiré. Poiré was born on April 20th, 1879 to parents Auguste and Louise. The family lived upstairs from their thriving Parisian textile business. Despite having three sisters, Poiré says that his only friends as a child were his dog, his cat, and house servant Edmond, who made the young Poiré toys out of scraps and wood when he wasn't busy helping him get into all sorts of mischief. Poiré was a curious child, and he says that, quote-unquote, boredom was unknown to him, and he kept himself entertained for days on end, especially when he was visiting his grandmother's country house in the garden. One of his most endearing stories in his memoirs, Poiré speaks out about the countless hours that he spent trying to extract scents and colorful ink from the myriad of flowers that surrounded her house. And he kept these kind of like floral treasures and boxes under his bed, only to find days later, to his utter disappointment, that there was nothing left of his beautiful scents but rot and mildew. Poiré grew up in a bustling Paris alive with architectural and technological innovations. You had test drives of the first automobiles, the building of the Eiffel Tower, and three world fairs that provided the backdrop for a childhood lived in intellectual and artistic pursuit. Poiré was kind of a so-so student, and he, he excelled at some subjects and he failed at others, but his best education seems to have come from outside of school. He spent many a day admiring sculpture and paintings at the Louvre and many a night at the Comédie Française, where he watched plays starring the period's leading performers such as Jean and Sarah Bernard. And thus, two of Poiré's great life passions, which were art and theater, were cultivated from this early age. But so too was his admiration of women's fashion. And Poiré wrote of his youth, quote, 
Women and their toilettes drew me passionately. I went through catalogs and magazines burning for everything appertaining to fashion. I was very much a dandy, and if I sometimes forgot to wash, I never forgot to change my collar. (laughs) At the age of 18, Poiré's dreams of attending university were basically crushed by his father when his father apprenticed him to an umbrella manufacturer. In an effort to break Poiré's considerable pride, this boss took the pleasure of giving him the absolute lowliest of tasks, which basically included sweeping the floors and stopping up the holes in umbrellas. This made him all the more determined to break free of this particular circumstance. He collected scraps of umbrella silk whenever he could, and he would take them home to experiment with creating dresses in miniature. The first incarnations of Poiré's imaginative confections took shape on a 15-inch wooden doll given to him by his sisters. But Poiré also put his fashion designs to paper, and it was not long before he began to shop his designs around to the local fashion establishments between umbrella deliveries. The fashion designer, Madame Chéry, was the first to see the young designer's potential and purchase his designs, followed by other prestigious fashion houses, including the House of Worth, Paquin, and finally that of Jacques Doucet. The latter was so impressed by this budding young designer that he offered him a full-time position. And just like that, Poiré became the head of the tailoring department at one of Paris's most prestigious design houses. No small feat for an experienced 19-year-old, I might say, April. Yeah, true. (laughs) And his new position, Poiré oversaw the designs of capes, cloaks, and two-piece suits known as tailor-maids. And one garment in particular, this majestic hand-painted black and white cape, was worn by the famed actress Réjean and a play to rave reviews. And really, moving forward from that, his reputation was established. At Doucet, Poiré received valuable training in the fashion arts. He found inspiration also in Doucet the Man, He wasn't even 20 yet, so Poiré was quite impressionable, and he basically was a little bit infatuated with with Doucet. He had a little bit of a man crush on him, I would say. Um, He he called Doucet, quote, the perfection of handsomeness and elegance. And Doucet was renowned for always being impeccably dressed. And he was also a very, very important fashion designer and an esteemed art collector. Doucet's valuable art collection and furniture and book collection included, most famously, Picasso's seminal De Demoiselle d'Avignon, which is now, of course, in the collection at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Poiré set about creating himself in Doucet's image, so he's ordering custom-made suits and really trying to enjoy the finer things in life, such as dining at expensive restaurants, attending the theater, and taking of a lover. <laughs> so Doucet apparently emphasized to Poiré that the latter was especially important to the type of image Poiré was trying to uh, project, which was a beautiful woman could be a walking advertisement of his designs. And the first of many lovers that Poiré had was actually a Doucet client, a wealthy American actress who provided Poiré with, quote, the fragrance of my youth and taught me English, end quote. The actress would prove to be the end of Poiré's time at Doucet, however, because the older couturier discovered Poiré was allowing her to have his designs that he created for her, made up at a much less expensive dressmaker. So the two do say and Poiré parted ways amicably, but they nonetheless parted ways. They did. And after leaving Doucet, Poiré had to serve compulsory military service for a year. He was a self-described poor soldier, and he spent most of his time concocting maladies to get out of his duties. And after only 10 months, he was released. He once again made the rounds at the fashion houses looking for an employment, and... This time, he landed a job at the House of Worth, 
um, which our listeners may remember was episode one of Dress. So if you want to learn more about the House of Worth, you can return to that. And at this time, the House of Worth was run by Charles Frederick Worth's two sons, Jean-Philippe and Gaston. As he had for Dusset, Poiret was hired to design for the tailoring department. Jean-Philippe was the talent mainly behind the luxurious, extravagant gowns for which the House of Worth's name was synonymous. It was beneath him, really, Jean-Philippe felt, to design the more practical, less exciting, everyday items of clothing that were also required by their clientele. And this is where Poiret came in. But doing, quote-unquote, just the basics, it didn't really hold his interest for very long. And he began experimenting with incorporating non-Western silhouettes into his work at Worth. But these ideas of his, they were just simply too new for worse, more conservative clientele. There was a really distinguished uh, Russian princess who proclaimed one of his Komodo-inspired cloaks as a horror. Like, she was actually offended by this She cloak. was really offended, actually. <laughs> uh, so offended that after this particular incident, Pari sensed that his end at worth was near. And he left the legendary couture house, taking his nascent Orientalist vision with him. How does that saying... Go, April. One princess's horror is another's masterpiece. <laughs> the style of coat, which Poiret later called Confucius, would become the cornerstone of his future collections. In 1903, with 50,000 francs loaned from his mother, Poiret set up his own shop at 5 Rue Aubert. Quote, in a month, I was known, said Poiret. And while in the early years, Poiret was creating clothing very much in keeping with mainstream haute couture at the time, and this meant corseted waists and wide, ground-sweeping skirts. This would all change in around 1906, shortly after his marriage to a childhood friend. His new bride would inspire Poiret to radically alter his design aesthetic and ultimately rechart the course of women's fashion. Six years her senior, Poiret married the 19-year-old Denise Boulot in 1905. The couple had known each other since they were children, their parents having been friends and business associates. But when they were reintroduced as young adults, Poiret was immediately drawn to this pretty, intelligent young woman from the country provinces. She would become his greatest model and muse. Quote, my wife Denise was my inspiration for my dress series, he told Vogue in 1913. It was she who inspired me to preach and follow the creed of simplicity. She is the expression of all my convictions, slim, dark, uncorseted, untouched by paint or powder, untrammeled by high heels, pointed shoes, or tight gloves. A natural effortless beauty, Denise was the antithesis of Poiret's highly polished clientele. Only three years in, the couture house had become so successful it required a larger premises. The year they relocated to the three-story mansion at 37 Rue Pasquier was also the year Denise began to appear in public uncorseted, without mm. stockings. Ooh, right? Scandalous. Very scandalous. <laughs> Her husband um, had basically made this complete break with the mainstream, and he started creating collections that were inspired by ancient Greek and Roman dress. Whereas the prevailing silhouette of the day revolved around a highly corseted waist, Poiret's gown, like the styles of antiquity, completely ignore the waist, and his dresses flowed in a sort of uninterrupted column from just below the bust. So this shift of support from the waist to the shoulders it's one of the foundations of modern dress. This new silhouette allowed his clients to do away with the corset if they chose to, although Pari did promote the wearing of a thin, kind of lightweight foundation garment, kind of similar to a girdle to kind of smooth out the lines of the figure. 
Yeah, and Poirier's approach to garment construction was as equally inventive as his design aesthetic. He didn't know how to sew, so he draped directly on the body, and in this way he produced dramatically simplified lines inspired by classical and non-Western forms of dress. This in turn earned him the moniker of Prophet of Simplicity, but in reality his designs are anything but simple. While Poirier is not the only designer modernizing and changing women's fashion during this period, our Let Dress listeners might remember that we discussed these other early pioneers in our Birth of Modern episode, so check that out if you haven't already. So Poirier's work was certainly the most avant-garde out of all of these designers, thanks to his unique blend of Orientalist and neoclassical influences. Quote, all my competitors would agree that I was the most daring of them all, he said. He who risks his reputation by enormously extending the limits of the possible. And we will hear all about Poirier's avant-garde designs when we get back after a word from our sponsors. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Poirier can be credited with popularizing several controversial styles that came into fashion just before World War I. The neoclassical silhouette, which we mentioned, was followed by the hobble skirt. The hem of the sheath-like hobble skirt extended to the ground and had an opening for the feet so narrow that women were actually prevented from taking a full stride. Some women even wore hobble garters, which were these elastic bands worn just below the knee. The bands around each leg were connected by a short strip of elastic, 
which restricted the span of the wearer's gait. And these were worn to prevent ripping one's skirt by taking too big of a step. Needless to say, this was a fairly short-lived <laughs> style. <laughs> and once again, a huge subject for the satirists. Yeah. About the hobble skirt, Paré said, quote, I freed the bust, but I shackled the legs. Women complained of no longer being able to walk or get in a carriage. And like I said before, you can imagine the fun that the satirists had with this very brief-lived trend. But it was not nearly as controversial as the jupe collat, which translates to pant skirt. Launched by Paré and the fashion house Béchoff David sometime around 1910, the jupe collat consisted of either a pair of pants concealed beneath an overskirt or harem pant-like draping that gave the overall effect of a skirt. Even this blended garment was enough to inflame the passions and objections that women were trying to dress like men. Every excess in matters of fashion is the sign of the end, said Poiré. And in the era of gargantuan hats covered in birds and flowers, Poiré anticipated the styles of the 1920s with dramatically simplified headwear. This included the Grecian fillet, a simple band of fabric that tied around the hair, and the wrapped turban. In fact, he was so enamored with Indian turbans he saw at the Victoria and Albert Museum during a trip in London that he actually sent a member of his staff back to the museum to study their construction so that he could accurately recreate his own versions. And while we are on the topic of hats, Pari also claims that he was among the first to promote short hair for women. Yeah, it's kind of said that he hated hair, actually, a thought. Yeah. Paré's innovative silhouettes were made all the more shocking by his bold and aggressive color combinations. The fashionable color palette at the turn of the century had been pale and delicate and very much pastel. But into this, Paré threw what he called a few rough wolves, (laughs) Um, ruby reds, acid yellow fabrics that might appear side by side with an emerald green white silk garments worn with black and royal blue stockings paired with purple shoes. One of his favorite color combinations was watermelon green and strawberry, and he used this in his dress designs as well as the wallpaper and curtains of his couture house. So as for Paré himself, he was always impeccably dressed, just like his mentor Doucet, but with decidedly more flair he wore jackets and an array of opulent fabrics and even had cufflinks that were coordinated to the days of the week. He wore custom-made shoes, and they were perforated with two intermingled peas. <laughs> I can't imagine. I, I, I can't imagine, actually. But uh, as the sole owner of his business, Paré exercised complete control over the creative and financial decisions. And if there's one thing that we need to know about Paré, is that he had quite the penchant for spending money. Oh, yeah. Lots and lots of money. (laughs) Quote, instead of putting out vast sums for publicity, Poiré said, as did all the other businessmen of my day, I preferred to give great celebrations. Indeed, no expense was spared in Poiré's grand fets, and they in turn received considerable coverage in the press. So in other words, Poiré really liked to have fun. For one of the very first parties he threw, each of his guests was given a role in the morning ceremony of the Sun King Louis XIV and dressed accordingly to their part. So Poiré, of course, played the royal tailor. And then another one of his celebrations was the Fête de Bacchus. Uh, So costume gods, goddesses, and nymphs danced until morning in a forest transformed into Olympia for the occasion. The revelries included performances by the celebrated dancer and Poiré friend Isadora Duncan. 
But it was one party in particular, Poiré's 1,002nd Nights Party, that would prove his most grandiose spectacle and would go down in history as one of the greatest parties of early 20th century Paris. So if I had to go back in history to one day, this party would have been it. (laughs) I might join you. Do you have a plus one? Yes. Um, In 1909, Paré had again relocated his couture house, this time to a very majestic late 18th century mansion, and he also purchased the two adjacent buildings as well, one for the couture house and one for his growing family's residence. Located at 107 Faubourg Saint-Honoré near the Champs-Élysées, The buildings were in an utter state of disrepair when Poiré purchased them, and he basically spent a small fortune restoring them to their past grandeur before making it the site of this party that was based on the collection of Middle Eastern folktales known as the Thousand and One Nights. This might be more familiar to some of us as the tales of the Arabian Nights. Over 300 costume guests attended the party, which forced the five senses to full attention with a phantasmagoria of intoxicating splendor and spectacle. Poiré reigns as the self-described swarthy white-bearded sultan, dressed in a jewel-encrusted silk turban and a gray silk caftan edged in skunk fur, and with ruby velvet slippers on his feet. As correct costume was of utmost priority, Poiré even had costumes on hand should a guest not meet his expectations for his Persian paradise. Upon arrival, his guests encountered Denise, who was the quote-unquote queen of the harem, and she was encased in a giant golden cage and surrounded by her ladies-in-waiting. Denise's costume, which consisted of a plumed velvet turban and a sheer wide hoop skirt over pantaloons, is immortalized in numerous photographs and illustrations. And in fact, Her turban still survives at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, as do other costumes from this particular party worn by guests at the Costume Institute in Japan and also the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Each room of Poiré's fashion house was decorated more elaborately than the next. For instance, the great tragedian, de Max, told stories from A Thousand One Nights in one room bedecked in $3 million worth of borrowed jewels. But it was in the garden that the real magic unfolded, a theatrical spectacle that Poiré described as a, quote, confused mass of silks, jewels, and egrets that sparkled iridescently like stained glass in the moonlight. The garden was transformed into an exotic paradise complete with a Persian bazaar, a pythoness, fortune teller, and even a butcher and potter. There was a giant vellum awning hand-painted by Poiré's modern artist friends that depicted Poiré as a big-bellied Buddha. (laughs) I love that. Leaping water fountains were lit from below in a rainbow of colors. The grass was strewn with pillows and carpets provided for lounging guests. The air was scented with incense and myrrh, and peacocks and pink flamingos roamed freely on the grounds. Monkeys and other other exotic birds roamed the trees. And I love this. There was a hidden orchestra that serenaded the crown while mimes, belly, and ballet dancers entertained them. If you're thinking that all of this sounds a little extravagant, you're not alone. The party was really the epitome of the unbridled indulgence and luxury that defined the pre-World War I era. One of Paré's contemporaries, the British fashion designer Lucille, Lady Duff Gordon, described this period right before the World War as a Paris of lavish entertainments, of magnificent fetes, of salons which rivaled the past, a Paris where music and wit and conversation flourished. It was a Paris of great wealth and almost unprecedented extravagance, I would probably have to agree with her on that. But Paris' party also underscored Europe's long-standing fascination with this romanticized, 
exotic take on the Far East. An Orientalist aesthetic was propagated by Paré in not just his fashion designs, but also his costume designs for the theater. And the lines between his costume designs and his mainstream fashion lines, these lines were often blurred. For instance, Paré created stage costumes for Jacques Richepin's play Le Minaret in 1913, and these costumes were a combination of a tunic and harem pants. The skirt of the tunic was shaped like a lampshade and used wire at the bottom to flare the fabric away from the body. Some of Paré's clients were so taken with this unusual silhouette that the designer actually adapted the stage costume for inclusion in his subsequent collections. Adding to the popularity of the fictive exoticism of this time was the influence of the Ballet Russe, the Russian ballet troupe that took Paris by storm beginning in 1909. The ballet's set and costume designer, Léon Basque, presented his own mesmerizing fusion of Russian, European, and Eastern elements in extravagant productions of Cleopatra, Scheherazade, and Paré and Basque's work were often compared. Poiré vehemently denies being directly influenced by Basque, but he did acknowledge, quote, I would not be surprised if it had a certain influence on me, end quote. So elaborate parties were just one way Poiré ensured his visibility and celebrity. I did not wait for success to grow by itself, he said. I worked like a demon to increase it, and everything that could stimulate it seemed good to me. I wanted to force the attention of Europe and the whole world, end quote. He also traveled extensively with his collections, and he went on tours with his model and his wife in America and all over Europe, where he actually was arrested on multiple occasions. Wait, he was arrested? In his memoirs, he talks about being arrested on two, I think, separate occasions. So one time for not having the proper permits and another for offending an officer. But I really think for Poiré, any publicity is good publicity. I want to know what he did to offend this officer. (laughs) Paré naturally would always maintain that he never advertised. He told the New York Times, I am not commercial, when he was touring the United States in 1913. He said, ladies come to me for a gown as they go to a distinguished painter to get their portraits put on canvas. I am an artist, not a dressmaker. And Paré really cultivated this persona and genuinely believed that he was an artist. He himself actually did paint on canvas as well as fabric, And he had an art gallery on the premises of his couture house, which was called Gallery Barbizonge. He was a really good friend and patron to many, many, many important modern artists, including Henri Matisse, Mogdaliani, and Pablo Picasso, just to name a few. Poiré has said that he actually considered his patronage of artists more than his work in fashion to be his greatest contributions to his own era. Yeah, and Poiré's interest in the fine arts led him to some really interesting collaborations, the artist books that he created with Paul Rieb and Georges Lepap, for example, are considered to have planted the seeds for modern fashion illustration. In 1908 and 1911, respectively, Paré hired Rieb and Lepap to illustrate limited edition artist books featuring his designs for clothing and accessories. Whereas traditional fashion illustrations depicted detailed line-for-line renderings and descriptions of garments, Paré's albums have no captions and very little text. Additionally, both Arib and Lepop took artistic license with their depictions of Poiré's gowns. Their illustrative styles are flat and two-dimensional, and they really evoke Japanese woodblock prints more than any fashion illustration previously seen before this. This effect was underscored by Poiré's choice to print the albums using a meticulous hand-stenciling technique known as pochoir, French for stencil, 
Each page was painstakingly created by hand using a series of stencils and custom ground gouache pigments. As you can imagine, this was really expensive and it allowed for the preservation of the painterly qualities of the artist's original works. These little books are luxury objects in and of themselves. And while they were created as promotional pieces for the Poiré brand, it's Poiré's marketing genius to hide their inherent commercial purpose under the guise of them being art. Poiré was one of the first fashion designers to explore these overlapping spheres of art and fashion. The two albums that Cassidy just mentioned, Le Robe de Papaché, which was published in 1908, and Les Choses de Papaché, which was published in 1911, they represented an entirely new take on fashion advertising and illustration. They validated fashion illustration as an outlet for even classically trained artists, and they would go on to inspire an entire generation of fashion artist illustrators in the art moderne and the art deco eras which followed. It's really worth noting that Le Pop in particular would go on to become an internationally celebrated fashion illustrator. For Vogue alone, Le Pop illustrated over 100 colors casts. As an image maker, Poiré also played a really pivotal role in what has been considered to be the first modern fashion shoot. In 1911, Edward Steichen published his hazy, mood-invoking photographs of Poiré designs in Art de Decoration magazine. Not only did Poiré design the featured garments, he also art-directed this photo shoot. But it was not enough for Poiré to conquer the entire world of fashion— And when we get back from our word from our sponsors, we will delve into how Poiré's expansion of his business helped to shape today's modern fashion industry. Poiré became the first fashion designer to develop a holistic brand when he expanded his offerings to include cosmetics, fragrance, and interior design. Quote, not satisfied with his supremacy in the domain of dress, wrote Vogue in 1912, Poiré enters the field of the decorative arts, where his original genius has created a new genre. But certainly couturiers have never before insisted that chairs, curtains, rugs, and wall coverings should be considered in the choosing of a dress, or rather that the style of the dress should influence the interior decorations of the home, end quote. The idea was, in fact, not entirely novel. After returning from trips to Berlin and Vienna, Poiré was inspired to explore the possibilities of interior design, In Vienna in particular, there's an avant-garde artistic community at the time called the Weiner Werkstatt, and Poiré got to visit these workshops, and he really admired the elevation of hand craftsmanship, as well as the integration of this craftsmanship with different design disciplines. So ceramics, fashion, furniture, architecture, and graphic design all converged into, I am going to attempt to say this properly, Gesamtskunstwerk. A concept that means essentially total work of art or synthesis of the arts. In 1911, Poiré founded his interior design firm, Martine, named after one of his young daughters. By 1912, Martine was comprised of three entities, École Martine, a decorative arts school, Atelier Martine, a workshop, and Les Maisons Martine, which was the retail boutique for Martine products. The school was comprised of young, working-class girls, all around somewhere at the age of 12, chosen by Paré specifically because of their untamed artistic vision. Paré said, My role consisted in stimulating their activity and their taste without ever influencing them or criticizing them so that the source of their inspiration would be pure and intact. He gave them free reign to interpret nature. He took them to zoos, 
parks, gardens, and sort of unhampered by rules or convention or traditional art training of any kind, the Martine students' work was fresh and it was new. He even taught the students how to weave rugs and embroider, so they were intimately connected with the designs that they produced. Their work was sold at the Maison Martine, alongside the work of other Paré collaborators, which included the artist Raoul Dufy, with whom Paré had created a print block workshop. The Italian author Gabriel D'Annunzio lauded Martine designs as, quote, the fifth season of the world. I love that. That is such like, so a supreme compliment. Yeah. Um, but Martine boutiques could actually be found across France and also in London and in Berlin. And the girls themselves were really responsible for hand-painting the interiors of dozens of private houses and offices and theaters and restaurants all across Europe. The same year, Poiré also became the first fashion designer to launch a perfume and cosmetics line, Les Parfums du Rosine, named after his oldest daughter. Today, perfume and fashion labels are practically synonymous, but in 1911, the concept was really unheard of and while Paré might not have been the very first designer to dabble in perfume, he was the first to make it an integrated part of his business model, in addition to cosmetics. And as we know, perfume was actually the realization of his childhood dream. Yeah, all those flowers and those boxes underneath yeah. his bed. Um, my favorite resume product was not the perfume or the cosmetics that he was offering, but the fact that he made—are you ready for this, Cass? He made rosine-scented cigarettes. Wow. He also made travel-sized versions of cosmetics and fragrances. And we know this because in our collection at FIT, we have some of the original rosine perfume catalogs. Ooh. Poiré's fragrances evoke romance, sensuality, and exoticism. Fragrances such as Forbidden Fruit, China Night, and Aladdin were made and packaged in Poiré's own factory. And Poiré's bottles, as April can attest to, were artworks in themselves, created in his glass-blowing facility. They were then decorated by his Martine students and other notable artists. With the subsequent merging of perfume, fashion, and interior design, Poiré successfully laid the blueprint for what we call today lifestyle branding, something that is omnipresent today in the fashion industry. His influence reached its zenith in 1914, and what fellow fashion designer Lucille referred to as the last brilliant pre-war summer. Lucille might have well been writing about Poiré when she wrote, quote, Harris amused itself, spent recklessly, gave wonderful fets, danced and laughed and made love as though she did not have a care in the world. And nobody saw the war crowds gathering until they burst with shattering suddenness. In one week, Paris was a changed city. World War I broke out in July of 1914, and Paris, Poiré, and Poiré, Inc. would never again be the same. So Poiré, like so many men, was immediately called to arms. His departure was done with all the fanfare one would expect from the Pasha of Paris, and it's actually recounted in a nationally syndicated advertisement in America. The American department store magnate John Wanamaker published his encounter with Poiré on the eve of his departure when he says he walked into Poiré's atelier and found Poiré dressed in uniform and surrounded by his weeping staff. Poiré told him, Quote, I'm going to join my regiment. France needs men today, not artists. To which Wanamaker replied, but have you nothing ready? No models that I may show to America? Said Poiré, no, the atelier is closed. It shall remain closed with nothing touching until I return, if I do return. The reality, however, is quite different. Oh, Poiré. <laughs> He's not afraid to tell a tall tale. 
I have to say. Uh, Poiret admits that he played a, quote, mediocre and very minor role in the war. And because of his occupation, he was given the job as a regimental tailor, and he never actually saw the front lines. He seems to have had a fair amount of freedom because at one point, he was stationed close enough to Paris where he was able to see his family and produce collections for his couture house and organize exhibitions for Martine. Ever enterprising, Poiret even prepared to launch a ready-to-wear line in America that would fill the demand for French fashion abroad. Due to wartime restrictions, however, only a few of these Paré ready-to-wear garments were ever produced, although a catalog of this very short-lived endeavor does remain behind. So despite never seeing battle, the war nonetheless brought tragedy to Nice and Paul with the death of two of their five children. Their oldest daughter, Rosine, died of an ear infection, not having been able to receive proper medical care during the war. And their infant son, Gaspard, who was born in 1918, he died of Spanish influenza that swept through Europe after the war. So as if World War I hadn't killed enough men, this flu swept through and killed millions of people. That's so sad. And that Rosine died of a, something as simple as an ear infection. That's, that's like heartbreaking. Yeah. And so after the war ended, Pari really threw himself into his work. And he set to designing with a renewed vigor, determined to restore his brand to its pre-war glamour and prestige. And he spared no expense in doing so. Paré's work before the war laid the groundwork for shortened hems and relaxed waistlines that became popular in the 1920s. But he refused to adopt more simplified styles of clothing the modern woman now demanded. Women went to work in the millions during World War I, and their clothing had adapted accordingly. The times of elaborate toilettes and ensembles were over, and women wanted to maintain clothing that was comfortable, practical, and chic. While Paré continued to make gowns with elaborate wire understructures and bustles, Chanel's star was on the rise. The 1920s would be her time to shine, and Poiret's relevance as a fashion powerhouse slowly faded. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, because he tried to bring back the crinoline as well as the bustle. Mm -hmm. It's just an interesting historical perspective. Uh, so Poiret's downfall can be attributed to more than his refusal to adopt Chanel-era simplicity, as many accounts would suggest. He emerged from the war with his reputation intact. His collections were still being lauded in the press, and he still had a high-profile clientele. In fact, he was the first to outfit the new music hall sensation Josephine Baker after her Paris debut in 1926. I believe that it was really Poirier's refusal to adapt to a more stringent financial situation that helped to secure his demise. In his memoir, Poirier really talks time and time again about his love of spending money, and this was as true of his businesses as it was of his personal life. And he had huge debts after the war, for one. And that Josephine Baker relationship that I just spoke of, it actually ended in a very public legal battle for unpaid bills into the hundreds of thousands. And Paré ultimately lost it. In 1919, Paré had invested heavily in an outdoor nightclub called The Oasis on the premises of his couture house. But the theater was, in Paré's words, a, quote, fiasco that lasted one season. He lost $500,000 in the endeavor. So that's about, I don't know, $7 million today. Wow. Okay, can we take a break for some potential unverified hot gossip? Sure, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so this relationship with Josephine Baker, it may have been a relationship that they were lovers. Um, this is a rumor. This is completely unverified. But it would make sense that you know, after the breakup, he had made her all these clothes and then he wanted her to pay for them. 
And this may have been what led to um, the breakup from his wife, Denise. Unverified hot gossip. Whoa. So after the series of ongoing bad financial decisions, Poiret was forced to take on financial backers. And to curb his reckless spending and probably just get him out of their hair in general, they sent him on a lecture tour of America where they also had set up business deals with a series of manufacturers in the business of mass-producing products. They were furious, his business partners, when Paré turned down a $16,000 deal. That would be about $300,000 today. Um, and, and it was with an American manufacturer who wanted to put the Poiré name on work boots. Can you imagine Poiré work boots? <laughs> I, I would buy them. <laughs> There's irony in the fact that Poiré received the prestigious Légion d'honneur award for his contributions to France's economy at the same time that he was forced to sell his 18th century mansion and move into a smaller premises. To celebrate, Poiré threw one final bash on Christmas Eve, 1924. But it was clear that Poiré dreamed of a Paris that no longer existed. When uninvited guests made off with his friend's belongings, Poiré acknowledged that the tide had changed. And yet he did not give up. For the 1925 Exposition Internationale des Arts Décoratifs et Industriels Moderne, the all-in-one breath, the World Fair from which the term Art Deco was coined, Paré spent a fortune outdecking three river barges entitled Love, Organs, and Delights. Each barge was decorated by Martine, and one hung 14 toile hangings painted by Paré's old friend Dufy that illustrated his latest fashion collection. On another barge was Paré's perfume piano, where each key connected to a fan would spray guests with a different rosine scent. It's all really clever, but Parisian society just did not show up. And Poiré blames poor management and the lack of advertisement, but it was becoming more and more apparent that there just was no longer a market for this sort of over-the-top extravagance. This same year, 1925, Poiré was forced to disperse with his prized art collection, which included many early works by seminal artists, including Duffy, Matisse, Modigliani, and Picasso. And it was not long until he was also forced to sell the entities of Rosine and Martine. In the meantime, the board of directors had greatly reduced Poiré's role in the company, even prohibiting his employees from speaking with him. Can you imagine? This is the company that he had built from the ground up. That's, that's sad. That's harsh. I'm going to call that it. harsh. And to top all of this off, after 23 years of marriage, he and Denise divorced in 1928. The stock market crash of 1929, final straw. Paré, Inc. shuttered its doors for good. So by the time Paré's memoirs were published in 1931, he was completely broke. He wrote, quote, I bear no resentment. I have accustomed myself to no longer being rich. I live in a pretty countryside in the Ile-de-France, and if sometimes there is gloom within my room, my window opens vastly upon a superb view and lets air and light and the heat of the sun and the freshness of night enter in freely. I am alone although I still have some friends and I have children whom I adore and who I think love me. Pari subsequently tried to reinvent his business on multiple occasions. These ventures only added to his financial difficulties, however. And he had multiple opportunities to collaborate with different companies, but every time he made a little money, he would squander it. When his sister gave him money to pay his rent, he bought a new telescope. And he had a hard time kind of curbing his taste for the finer things in life. Paré's nephew recounts a story to Cecil Beaton in the 1930s 
about a luncheon spent with his uncle. Poiret was broke, but he still had, quote, innumerable chilled bottles of champagne from the remains of his wine cellar, said Beaton. They drank the champagne and conveniently forgot the lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Newspapers were unkind to Poiret and made light of it when he eventually had to seek unemployment. However, Poiret seems to have had the final laugh. When the unemployment agent insisted he put dressmaker as his profession, Poiret responded, just make sure you let everyone know. I can't sew, (laughs) right? Because he was an artist, not a dressmaker after all. At the end of his life, Poiret was reduced to living with his sister, but he still had grand dreams of opening a fashion and decorative art school. He painted to earn the little income he had, and his friends organized exhibitions of his work on at least two separate occasions. The last was just before he died in 1944 in the last days of World War II. The exhibition was held at the Galerie Charpentier on the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, fittingly the very same street where almost 40 years earlier Poiré had dazzled all of Paris, surrounded by friends and family, and even some of his Martine students. Poiré was noticeably weakened by the Parkinson's disease that racked him late in his life. He would die shortly after, on April 28, 1944, at the age of 65. In a speech given to a crowd in Chicago in the late 1920s, Paré said, Among the appellations with which it pleases people to describe me, there is one which has always amused me. It is that of king of fashion. No title is better suited to flatter a man's spirits, all the more because the king of fashion reigns not only over one people, but over all peoples, over the whole world, and over sovereigns themselves. And with the words of the king, we will conclude this episode. Until next week, we hope you indulge your inner rock star when you're getting dressed. For images accompanying this episode, please see our Instagram feed at dressed underscore podcast. This is where you can also find us on Twitter. Our Facebook is at dressed podcast. If you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. See you next week. 